Two and a Half Admins, episode 59. I'm Joe. I'm Jim. And I'm Alan. And here we are again. And before we get started, you've got a blog post plug as usual, Alan. Risk Five: the new architecture on the block. Yeah. So Mitchell's written a bunch here about what Risk Five is and, and how FreeBSD is adopting it. And getting in on the ground floor. Yes. Very wise, I think. Yeah, I think that architecture is going places. Yeah, although ARM is pretty interesting as well. Um, the ARM Morello platform is coming out soon, which is uh, basically a version of ARM with 128-bit pointers, where the top 64 bits are basically permissions about the pointer, so that it'll make the typical things like buffer overflows impossible, because the maximum size of the buffer will be part of the pointer you get. And currently, the only operating system that supports these features is FreeBSD. And so it'll be really interesting to see that stuff when it starts coming out next year. But why not hedge your bets, eh? Well, they're building a version of this for RISC-V as well. Oh, nice. So there'll be a RISC-V extension that provides these same features. If you're playing the long game, my money's on RISC-V. The difference in openness between the architectures, you know, in terms of who manages the IP and, uh, you know, what permissions are granted, anybody can have the level of control over a RISC-V processor that Apple has over the M1. And not anybody can be an Apple with ARM architecture. That's true, but... Risk Five is also having a bit of the ARM problem of every board is completely different. If you started to look at the kind of extensions for Risk Five, you end up with the you know it's Risk Five plus these twenty seven extensions. It's like this version of Risk Five can actually divide numbers, but this one can, and then like this one can do these types of math and those types of math. And to be fair, you'd have to be a pretty special kind of stupid to be an OEM looking to put together a RISC-V system and not realize you'd picked a version that couldn't divide numbers if that was important to you. Well, no, but it's just saying that a processor is RISC-V, it doesn't actually explain what the processor does the same way that other instruction sets do. The fact that RISC-V is designed to go scale all the way down to like a microcontroller that just does this one simple thing and it's tiny, all the way up to compete with x86 and ARM on the server means that there's going to be very a lot of very different versions of it. And I think they're going to have a lot of the same problems of all those little ARM boards that we like we talked about last week. That you can't just pick up your workload off one Risk Five and move it to a different Risk Five platform because it'll have very different extensions and so everything will have to be recompiled differently and so on. I'm guessing they'll come up with some like minimum standards, you know, this is uh this class of Risk Five or something at some point. But right now it's all very much up in the air. Well, that's very early days, isn't it? So I'm sure all that will happen. Yeah, they're still trying to figure out their memory coherency model and things like that. Well, link in the show notes as usual. There was an announcement recently from the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, saying that they're going to deprecate the HTTPS Everywhere plugin. And this feels to me like a real, we did it, we won moment. At least in theory, yeah. There's a couple of reasons for the deprecation. Uh, one is that HTTPS pretty much is everywhere now. It's hard to even find statistics on HTTPS adoption in the earliest days, in like 2009, when the plugin was brand new. It was something like 3 to 5% of the web used HTTPS. Lots of people's banks didn't even use <laughs> HTTPS, which is hard to believe now. Whereas, you know, these days, it's more like 90% of the web plus, depending on what section you're looking at is HTTPS encrypted. So that's that's one reason for, you know, deprecating the plugin. But probably the more important one at this point is that all of the major mainstream browsers have their own version of HTTPS everywhere now. There's some option, although it's typically not on by default, that you can tick within the browser to say, you know, hey, I want you to 
only use HTTP as the absolute last resort. If you see an HTTP connection, try to upgrade that to HTTPS, see if it works. You know, if it doesn't, then depending on the browser, you either fall back or you just outright fail and say, nope, can't make a safe connection to that one, boss. Not gonna happen. Yeah, well, about a year ago, I enabled this in Firefox and then uninstalled HTTPS everywhere because I didn't need it anymore. And now if I get an HTTP only site, it just warns me and says, hey, you sure you want to go ahead? And I click the button and it lets me through. Yeah, exactly. Unfortunately, right now, still the um, the only browser that actually does this by default without anybody needing to twiddle any knobs or check any boxes is Safari. All the others, it's an option that you have to enable, but Safari, you don't do anything. It just does it automatically. Yeah, and you know, websites have the HSTS, HTTP Strict Transport Security, for a website to be able to say, hey, you've been here before with HTTPS. Remember for the next X long that this website will never legitimately ask you to come here without HTTPS. And because the website's opting into that and setting the time frame for that, it has advantages over just trying to assume to always be HTTPS or saying, if you have to fall back, something is definitely wrong. Someone is tampering with your connection here. That gives helps the user make a decision that this is not just a temporary problem. This is likely somebody actually trying to do something nefarious. It's worth mentioning also that back when HTTPS Everywhere became a thing, certs used to cost money. This was long before Let's Encrypt. I think Let's Encrypt was a big reason why we've seen the adoption of HTTPS, or at least a lot less of the, we're using HTTPS, but with a self-signed certificate. Because now, many times, Let's Encrypt is less hassle than setting up a self-signed certificate, if not about equal. There's not really a reason not to have real certificates anymore. Unroll the banner on the aircraft carrier. Mission accomplished. (laughs) (laughs) I remember when like websites would only switch to it when you were going to enter a credit card or whatever, when they had to. Yeah. Yeah. Or like Hotmail, you'd go to HTTPS to log in and then go back to HTTP to read your email. (laughs) Because, you know, the HTTPS cost them a lot of money hardware-wise because to doing the encryption and the decryption back in the day. I suppose that's another aspect of it, right? That computers have got faster, servers are much beefier now. Well, and like... AESNI means that you can do it at 8 gigabytes a second on a modern CPU per core versus 30 megabytes a second when you're doing it in pure software. Yeah, because it's not being done in software anymore. It's being done in hardware. You do occasionally come across an HTTP-only website these days. I have one on purpose that I use as my version of, was it like there's there's never HTTPS.com or whatever for making sure the captive portal loads correctly so you can log into the Wi-Fi at the airport? You do generally look down on those sites, don't you? Uh, depends. My blog doesn't need HTTPS. Of course it does. But what it needs is content newer than 2004 when I was the last time I posted. <laughs> well, yeah. But th- that used to be the case, right? Where oh, it's only a blog, it doesn't need it. Whereas now, there's just the assumption that everything has to have it. And I remember dragging my feet on it and not wanting... I'm, oh, I'm just doing podcasts, who cares? But... It got to the point where you just have to do it now. It's just like an, a socially accepted norm. It's like wearing a seatbelt. Well, I, you know, when search engines started caring more about it, it turned out to start to matter. Yeah. If you didn't have HTTPS, you weren't going to get as much search traffic. Uh, and I think that's one of the things that's definitely led the, on the commercial side to everything adopting it. Yeah, that's that's been a huge factor. Driving adoption is, is you know, saying, hey, I, I, I can't afford the lack of Google juice that I'm going to have if I don't have a certificate. From a pure security side, I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of done to the same thing as like, it's it's the same reason you don't have a password, password one. Don't tell me, oh, it doesn't matter. It's just my blog or whatever. Like, 
there's a password. You should have a real password on it. You should follow the best practices. You know, if you're out there rocking an HTTP only site for pretty much any other reason than Alan's like, I want it, you know, to, to successfully get mangled by the captive portal that's trying to mangle my traffic so I can log in. Just about any other reason, you know, you're, you're that guy insisting that password is a perfectly fine password. No, it's not. Isn't it more about privacy than security, though? Bear with me for a sec here, Joe. Let's just assume that the 2.5 Admins podcast has a few high-value targets among its listeners. You know, maybe professional system administrators and infosec people that you might specifically, you know, want to get a toehold on to get into, you know, some outfit that they work at. Mm -hmm. Well, you've got something called a watering hole attack where you say, well, I know this person, you know, will go to this site. Now, if 2.5 admins was served from a non-HTTPS site, that means that if you know that and you can get control of the network in between you and your high-value target, now you can inject the zero-day, you know, drive-by exploit that will target, you know, that person's browsers right into the, you know, 2.5 admins page. With HTTPS, you can't do that because you're in the middle and you can't inject anything other than meaningless noise into the stream. Sure, you can dump garbage in there, but all it's going to do is, you know, force packets to get retransmitted. In the end, while a lot of people's want for HTTPS is the privacy, the actual point of HTTPS is verifying the identity of the site you're connecting to and make sure that's really your bank before you type in your credit card number. Or that's the real website, not somebody pretending to be it. So hopefully their server hasn't been rooted and used for this watering hole attack. But at least we know that it's not just somebody sitting on the network pretending to be them and rerouting my traffic. I suppose ultimately, when it comes to a Venn diagram of privacy and security, there's a lot of overlap. Yeah. Yes. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash 25A and see why Linode has been voted the top infrastructure as a service provider by both G2 and Trustradius. From their award-winning support offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, it's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. Linode offers great price-to-performance value for all compute instances, including GPUs, as well as block storage, Kubernetes, and their upcoming bare metal release. Linode makes cloud computing fast, simple, and affordable, allowing you to focus on your projects, not your infrastructure. So go to linode.com slash 25A Create a free account with your Google or GitHub account or your email address and you'll get $100 in credit. That's linode.com slash 25A. Let's talk about something that you found, Alan, weaponizing middle boxes for TCP reflected amplification. Now, I read this. I can't say I understood every word of it. <laughs> okay. So these middle boxes are basically things that companies will use or nation states will use to try to filter what websites you can go to. So if you're in Iran and you try to go to Facebook and it tells you bad person or whatever, a lot of these boxes actually end up violating network standards because they're sitting in the middle and they want to close your attempt to open a connection to Facebook. They will send you a response pretending to be from Facebook or whatever and, and close the connection and send you this page saying, hey, you're not allowed to go there. You're, you know, the way TCP IP works is you have this three way handshake to make sure that when I'm trying to connect to Jim, I can't pretend to be Joe because Jim will send his responses directly to Joe who won't 
have made the original request and be like, why am I getting this and throw it away or send back? No, that wasn't from me. And so I could never, with TCP, I have a hard time pretending to be Joe when connecting to Jim. With UDP, you don't have this problem. But it turns out, if I pretend to be Jim, when I go and talk to the Iranian box and say I want to go to Facebook, the Iranian box will send the page saying you shouldn't go to Facebook to Jim, even though Jim never asked for it. And because my request to go to Facebook is small, just a couple of bytes, but the response it sends is larger, it means I can do what's called a reflection attack against Jim, where I can send a bunch of small requests and cause this filtering box to send a bunch of big responses to Jim, which will basically flood him off the internet. Hence the amplification. Yeah, that's the amplification part. The worst is the fact that it can be self-sustaining. Some of these boxes are so misconfigured that when Jim's computer sends back a reset packet saying, hey, I didn't have a connection open with you, why are you talking to me? It will send back another one saying, no, you can't go to the website or whatever. And so now Jim's computer's replying saying, stop sending me this shit will cause it to send more stuff and he will sustain the attack on himself. So for those of you who actually know what a send packet, an act packet, an RST packet are, the short version of this is that a lot of these boxes, it turns out, they're willing to just assume that you really are the originator of a packet just because your IP address is in the headers, despite the fact that you haven't actually sent a proper SIN and gotten an ACK and had the whole three-way handshake that initiated the tunnel. These boxes, they cut corners. They just say, hey, well, I got this packet that has this IP address in the source, so I should tell the source very verbosely, not just send the source an RST packet, which would get thrown away because it's not part of an established sequence. I should send that host whose IP address was in the headers of this packet an entire web page that takes many, many entirely full packets to render, telling them in very human readable detail, oh, no, you're not allowed to, you know, view that page. Please look up our safety policies and, you know, blah, 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 whatever, whatever, whatever. So you as the attacker literally just have to send one single very short forged packet in the middle box obligingly sends a big fat web page off to this, you know, innocent victim, which would not be possible if the middle box had been TCP compliant in the first place. If it were TCP compliant, it would have ignored that initial packet. But it's behaving as though it were operating in UDP land rather than TCP land. And that means you can have an enormous amplification factor even without, as Alan said, you know, the possibility that because my properly configured box says, no, I don't know you, and sends an RST packet back, now the box says, hey, why'd you send me an RST packet? Here's another web page. Yeah, and you're going to sustain the attack on yourself. And there's some other ones they found, like if you can position one of these middle boxes in a routing loop, you send the one packet, as it goes past the middle box, it sends the web page to Jim, and then the packet loops around, and it go the same packet goes past the middle box again, and it sends another one. And it keeps it in a loop until the TTL on the packet runs out. And they managed to make one packet sent from my host send the victim somewhere between 60 and 250 packets. So you can get amplification factors that were previously unimaginable. How would you mitigate against this, then? The middle box shouldn't accept requests from the outside, right? They should only be filtering people coming from their inside whether that's a country or a corporate network, people on the internet shouldn't be sending requests to get to Facebook to the filter box from the internet. But most of them don't bother checking that. Or they're very liberal about what they'll accept to send their thing to because they want to make sure they block it, right? Anything they do to make it so they only send responses to the right people means there's more chance that somebody can get past the filter and get to the website they're not supposed to be able to get to. 
one of the reasons, like uh, Jim was saying, that they don't do the proper TCB state stuff is because it means they need a lot less computational power to handle all those connections, all those computers connecting to things if they don't have to keep track of every connection and if it's actually all the way open yet. They can just be like, oh, you sent some packets, I'm going to try to ruin your connection without actually having to be like a proxy in the middle and do all the full state tracking. And like the researchers say in their paper here, it's unlikely a lot of these will get fixed properly because as the company using one of these, you bought it from somebody, you're not going to, you don't have the ability to fix it. Or if you're a nation state, it's like, you know, we just don't care. Yeah. So I imagine most of them will implement some kind of filtering to stop people from outside being able to use them as a reflection vector only for the reason that otherwise they will run out of bandwidth. People will just use these to attack other people, whether it's gamers taking out Minecraft servers or people taking down websites or whatever, or people just purposely causing attacks because they don't like the idea of countries filtering people's internet. If the country doesn't want to run out of external bandwidth, they will find some way to limit their blocking to only apply on connections coming from inside their country and going to the outside. But as the victim, there's not much Jim could do to stop this. Well, it depends on whether, you know, this is Jim, the end user or Jim, you know, the hypothetical network administrator that can null route stuff. Right. I mean, as, as the victim, as the victim, there's not much you can do. Yeah. As a network engineer, like, you know, once you see that there's a, a problem with an enormous, you know, what amounts to a denial of service attack, you know, coming from, I don't know, Saudi Arabia's firewall or whatever you say, well, you know, turns out I don't really care that much about Saudi Arabia anyway, so uh, I'm just going to null route them until this goes away. And that will largely mitigate the problem as far as you're concerned. Right. And if it gets big enough, Saudi Arabia is going to want to stop it because they're paying for the outgoing bandwidth and they're like, you know, this is just junk traffic. But that sounds like there could well be quite a bit of collateral damage. You say I don't care about Saudi Arabia, but I'm sure, well, I know there are people listening to our show, not many, but some in Saudi Arabia and all over the world. So you are potentially causing problems by solving this problem, it sounds like. Yes, absolutely. And, and, you know, to be clear, especially because I am an American, I do want to make it clear to, you know, anybody who's listening, I absolutely care about people who live in Saudi Arabia. Everybody's people, you all matter. I'm just trying to describe, you know, a business logic type decision. Like if you're a business who has a network engineer, if you don't actually have a lot of business relationships with people in Saudi Arabia or your customers don't, then that's going to feel like a pretty easy decision. Like, well, I'm just going to have to null route that. And in fact, by the time somebody null routes that, it's probably not going to matter much to the folks that were behind that firewall anyway, because they're already unable to reach your site because your site was being DOS by all this traffic. Mm, yeah. That also brings us back to, you know, Joe, there actually is something to some degree that some level of end user can do. If your home network is getting DOSed, you really don't have a whole lot of options. But if this is a case of like, you know, you have a website and it's getting DOSed, well, your option there, you know, is is to go with a DDoS mitigation company, you know, somebody like Cloudflare. They're the ones who will then do the, you know, nope, we're null routing that traffic. That's garbage. And, uh, you know, we're dealing with this DOS. Okay. This episode is sponsored by CBT Nuggets. Training for IT professionals or anyone looking to build IT skills. Go to cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins and sign up for a seven-day free trial. The on-demand virtual labs mean you can build practical experience with the commands, config, scripts, and everything you need to get the most out of each course. Another standout feature is the accountability coaching service, available to all learners with a subscription, which gives you access to a real person who will help you craft a personalized learning plan and set goals, 
and we'll check in with you to keep you accountable. So start your free seven-day trial today at cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. It includes unlimited access to all course materials, including virtual labs. That's cbtnuggets.com slash 25admins. Let's do some free consulting then, but first just a quick thanks to everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. You can go to 2.5admins.com slash support to learn more about it. And remember, for $5 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed. So check it out. If you want to send in your questions for Jim and Alan, show at 2.5admins.com. And do keep them coming. Okay, Michael says, I recently read an article about SSH tar pits, which basically bog down attackers who have managed to SSH into port 22, or any designated port. Is this something commonly used? It might stop the most amateur of script kiddies, but seems like security through obscurity. Won't any decent attacker just look for other ports? I think there's two different aspects to this. The first is, yeah, running your SSH on a port other than 22 is really not going to give you any extra security. And the point of the tar pit generally is to waste the time of the attacker so that, you know, they can only scan so many addresses at a time. But that's less true than it was in the past. A lot of the bots no longer just be like, all right, I'm going to have 20 open connections. And when I finish with one, I'll do the next one. A lot of them are much more asynchronous than that now and don't get slowed down by some of the people they talk to purposely trying to slow them down. And, you know, they've got wise to it and put in, if I've been trying to log in to this one server for 60 seconds, and it's only accepted the first four letters of the username, it is purposely just screwing with me. I'm just going to give up and move on. The reason to tarp it a service is to make it more expensive for the attacker. That is the reason, period. It doesn't make you more secure than just blocking that attacker. What it does is literally waste their resources. So ultimately, you know, comes down to their money, how many attacks they can carry out. You know, everything becomes more difficult, more expensive. SSH tar pitting used to be a really effective process in like 2003 when the majority of your attackers were trying to brute force or dictionary attack your SSH server all from one machine on one port. So, you know, you tar pit that machine and you've done some real damage to your attacker's total resources as well as slowing down, you know, the number of connections they have to you. But that's not the way most modern attacks work these days. I mean, the kind of attack that you would hope to make more expensive with a tar pit is usually not coming from a single box. It's coming from a botnet. And the attacker isn't actually paying anything for that botnet. It's other people's freaking computers. They're not generally that worried about how expensive a particular attack on a particular machine is. Because, you know, when when you've got 10,000 machines that are all doing these things, and like Alan said, you know, it's distributed amongst them as a cluster anyway, the impact of you tar pitting something rather than just blocking it becomes pretty infinitesimal. So another issue with blocking versus tar pitting that used to make tar pitting look more attractive is when you've got just one machine that's literally trying to run through a 50,000 word dictionary hoping to luck out on a passphrase on your system. If you're just closing those connections, then it can do a lot of those and it can, you know, really eat a lot of your resources. Whereas if you've tar pitted them, then they don't move on to the next one until the last one is done. But that's not what those attacks look like anymore. Um, it's usually not even the same machine at all. Again, you're, you're getting hammered by lots and lots of machines in a botnet, and you tar pit one of them that has no impact on the other one that is simultaneously, you know, trying to try a different stupid word against your root account, hoping to get in. 
surely you should be disabling password authentication anyway and just using keys. Sure. Which point? That doesn't really stop the botnet from talking to your SSH so much that your legitimate connection can't get to it because, you know, it's hit the session limit. Right. And yeah, like Jim was saying, the point of the tar pit is to slow the bad guy down. But the bad guy, there's so many bad guys now that they're not spending their own money to do the attacks anymore. Well, yeah. And the bad folks have the DevOps mentality now. You know, you do everything really fast, break stuff, lots of resources, parallel processing. You might naively think if you've completely disallowed password login on your server, and anytime you try one, it says no public key required, you'd be like, oh, well, you know, my attacker is going to be clever enough to read that and stop bothering my server because it can never get in with this brute force attempt. No, because they're not worried about machine time. They're worried about their own time. It would take them more time to design that bot to be that smart. And they might introduce a bug that would cause that but not to attack targets that it should have been attacking because maybe they were vulnerable. So you don't code that out. It doesn't buy you anything as the black hat that's using a rented botnet to perform you know, all these attacks anyway. You attack all the things. So fail to ban and general ban lists is the way to go. I really hesitate to recommend fail to ban. If you're having problems with resource exhaustion you know, due to attempts to, to SSH into your server, Personally, I recommend just building an IP tables rule that will only allow a certain number of connections per minute. In my experience, that has the best combination of preserving your resources with not giving your attacker, theoretically, the ability to to knock out service. Because the problem with doing anything like fail to ban is that once you carve away a few variables, what you're actually saying is, I am giving my attacker the ability to control some subset of my firewall rules. And that's pretty dangerous. There can be a lot of unintended consequences there. One being that if your attacker has some way to, you know, get onto a network that's behind like carrier grade net, say like a university campus, they got a shell in a box somewhere in your university campus. They can just attack you from there. And if you're just doing a simple fail to ban on that IP, you know, for that CG net, now maybe 10,000 people who should have been able to get to your box can't because you failed to ban a whole campus because of that one attacker. Yeah, it's basically a second-order denial of service attack tricking you into denying your own service. And God help you if there's a bug in that application that you've installed to you know dynamically make changes to your firewall rule set in response to things that poke it from the outside world. If there's something that whoever wrote that application, you know, hasn't thought of or wrote in some way wrong, there's a very real possibility there that, you know, once that vulnerability gets discovered, now you've just given the whole Internet the ability to do weird things to your firewall. Nah, no thanks. I'm not into that. The difference between that and what on the surface looks kind of similar, where I've got an IP tables rule set that says you can't connect from one IP address more than, you know, N times per unit of measurement. That's actually static. That's a rule that I configured that does not change in response to any attacker action. Whereas if you're running fail to ban that will say, oh, well, you know, this IP address 88 dot, you know, three other numbers, I don't care, has tried to connect 10 times this minute. Therefore, it sucks. I should block it. One, uh, usually people do like perma blocks on fail to ban, which is dumb because IP addresses change hands very regularly and you don't know what you'll have firewalled off forever that hasn't been your attacker for, you know, a year now. And then two, again, this is an application. 
that is making additions and deletions to your firewall rules. So this is another like major avenue for bugs that you've opened up into something very sensitive on your system. Yeah, and you have the risk of accidentally locking yourself out for some reason. You know, you didn't have your key loaded or whatever, and you tried to connect too many times. The time for me is I spelled my username wrong once, and then it kept not working. And I was like, why is it not working? And then it, now it won't connect at all. <laughs> I was just lucky enough that I happen to have a couple of static IP addresses in different places and machines I own for a long time. And I've always put whitelist rules in for a couple of my things is, you know, if I jump through this other machine, I'll definitely still be able to get in no matter where I am. It's mostly about making sure that when I'm, you know, in a hotel on the road at a conference that I have some, a second way to get to the machines I need to get to in case something goes wrong. I got servers in low places. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like Jim was saying, having a dynamic rule that says each IP address can only make so many connections per minute is helpful. You have to be careful with rules that say, you know, not more than so many incoming connections to this port at a time, because it means I can, as one person, make that many of connections to Jim's SSH server for the next week. And then Jim can't log in because, or, you know, only has a one in a thousand chance of, of getting his packet in in the right order to beat me and be one of the 10 that's allowed in per second or whatever. Yeah. And anything that gives an attacker the potential to manipulate the firewall rule set and possibly cause a lockout of a legitimate user. Even if you can't do anything else but that, that's a great way to trigger an extra vulnerability to social engineering because now you've got a legitimately locked out user that you can impersonate when you get to the person who, like Alan, you know, has servers in low places or whatever and can just, you know, fix the problem, you know, basically like, you know, Aaron Barr all over again, right? You've got the kid that makes the call in and says, you know, oh, I got locked out. You know, I'm so-and-so user. And, you know, sysadmin's like, yeah, I, I, I can see that. That's down. All right, well, you know, let me help you out here. And, you know, it makes things easier. It, it drops human firewalls. Right, well, we'd better get out of here then. Remember, show at 2.5admins.com if you want to send in your questions or feedback. You can find me on Twitter at Joe Rissington. I'm at JRSSNet. And I'm at Alan Jude. We'll see you next week.